I might try that today, depending on what you ask. Just say, hey, you know, those are great questions. Let's move on. Um, I want to say good morning again. I'm Dion. And uh, as you see, this topic today is, is, uh, is maybe, a, a little, um, maybe a little more adult. Um, we didn't call this out at the beginning. Um, but if, you, if you've got kids with you in the room, I, we're not going to go into super detail on anything. I will use some vocabulary that your kids may or may not be familiar with. It may pose some questions. I'll just let you know, my own seven-year-old son, Corbin, who often likes to come to church with me on Sunday mornings at nine and then go to children's ministry later on. He likes to hear the messages. He asked his mom if it was okay if he could go to church today. And we talked about that as parents. And uh, some of this he may, you know, just may fly over his head. We might have to have some discussions later. I feel comfortable as a parent having him here. You as a parent need to make those own decisions for yourself. But I just want to call that out. Uh, And then I just want to dive into it. See, when I was growing up in the church, um, I kind of had this idea that there were two things that God hated more than anything else in the world. One of them was murder, which still kind of makes sense. You know, it's, it's, it's a pretty gruesome thing. Um, and, and the other thing was sex before marriage. <laughs> that was on my list, murder and sex before marriage. Those were the things that God must have hated most. And I held on to those beliefs all the way until I got into that hormone-laden environment of high school. And then I started rethinking this whole thing to say, wait, can that be right? I know murder's bad, but is the rest of this bad? See, I think a lot of us have experiences like that. Maybe, maybe the substance of those things were different, but I think a lot of us grew up with, with a list in mind, a list of things that God was especially offended by when it comes to human behavior. Um, whether that's, um, you know, for, for a generation, it was having a child out of wedlock, or um, for another generation, it was people who got divorced, or for another generation, maybe it was people who identified as gay. Um, we all have a list like that. Now, now, here's what's interesting. For a while, for a while... The, uh, the list that the church had and the list that the culture at large had, they matched up pretty much. And so the things that the church would talk about as being morally offensive, the culture would also hold to those ideals as being morally offensive. In fact, there were times in history where committing a moral crime, you know, a moral offense against God was, was punishable criminally. People were put in jail and even executed for coloring outside the lines morally. But I think we can all agree that those days are gone aren't they? You know, there are things that, that would have been scandalous to me at 13 or 10, which are the age of my daughters, um, and, and we'll talk about that at our family, and they just kind of shrug. It's no big deal to them. And I think, wow, I mean, a few years makes a huge difference. Our culture has really moved on when it comes to attitudes about sexuality, but one place where things haven't moved much is the church. We're pretty much talking the same way that we always have. And today we're going to wrestle with the question, is that a good thing? Or is that a bad thing? And as a part of this series, as I mentioned at the beginning, we'll also be taking your questions that I'll, I'll do my best to answer later on. So you can even text those questions in at 636-686-0140. Now, uh, when Christians talk about sexuality, again, I'm just going to try to dive into this and uh, just, I'm going to hit you pretty hard today um, with some stuff that I think is deep and important to frame this whole topic. Um, when Christians talk about sexuality, we often go to a few places in the Bible that mention it overtly. Um, one of those places is 1 Corinthians. We've talked about that recently. Another place is 1 Timothy, and that's where we're going to go today. We're going to go to 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's a letter that Paul wrote to another pastor. Paul was a leader in the church. He's writing to a young pastor named Timothy, and he's writing to him about really about God's law and the uses of God's law. There were some people who were preaching that you had to please God through your behavior, and uh, Paul's trying to set the record straight for Timothy. So we're going to look right now, starting at verse 8. Paul says, we know that the law, that God's law is good if one uses it properly. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later on. 
We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and the irreligious. Now, maybe that sounds weird for you. Like, if, if, you're, uh, if, you're, if you're not one of these people, you don't have to pay attention to the law. I think what Paul's actually saying, though, is, is, is if you were a righteous person, you know, if every attitude of your heart and mind were right, you wouldn't need the law, would you? You wouldn't need anyone to tell you what to do. You would be a law unto yourself. You would naturally do what was right or good if you were righteous. But since there aren't actually any people like that who are righteous on our own, there are laws, Paul says. And, and that's, there's a use for the law, and that law is to restrain behavior or to point us to different behavior. So he says the law exists then for people like those who, um, this translation says kill uh, the word is actually strike, strike their fathers and mothers. So, you know, maybe, maybe uh, assaulting your parents or actually um, killing them. For murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. So Paul says, you know, if, if you're righteous, you don't need the law, but the law exists for people like, and then he names this list, and he says, you know, people who kill their parents, and murderers, and uh, slave traders. And then in the middle of that, he drops gay people and the sexually immoral, people who, who might sleep with someone before they're married. Now, doesn't there seem to you, just as you think about that list, like there could be a disconnect. One of these kids is not like the other one, right? I mean, don't, don't you kind of feel that when you look at that list? Now, it could be that when we look at those words that we're not understanding them the right way. When, when Paul talks about uh, sexual immorality, for instance, the Greek word behind that, it's, it's a pretty vast word. Um, and we're not, we're not really sure whether it should be applied just to people who have sex outside of marriage or um, it goes everything to people who might practice prostitution or temple, um, you know, like religious uh, prostitution, things to, to worship false gods. It's kind of got a pretty broad word, frankly. So maybe we just don't understand exactly what he's talking about here. Uh, that other word that's translated, uh, those who practice homosexuality, it's even, even a stranger word. It's a really rare word. Paul maybe even made it up because it's not found in other literature like most words in the Bible are. Um, the word shows up first in 1 Corinthians. It shows up also here. And the word is a compound word made up of two Greek words, the words man and bed. Man and bed. And so people, linguists, have wrestled with what does this word actually mean in context? Um, certainly, people who practice homosexuality, that's not accurate because it's only referring to men, right? It's not saying anything about women. Um, so so uh, there have been some people who've questioned and said, well, is this really about that or is this more about pimps? Is this about male prostitutes? Is this about some darker stuff? Could be, you know, maybe it would make more sense in that context. That's one way to go with this, is just to say, maybe we don't understand these words rightly. Maybe those things aren't really included the way they seem. The other way to go with this is to say, yeah, for Paul, if, if, if you were, you know, act on uh, same-sex attraction or if you, um, you know, live with someone outside of marriage, that's just as bad as killing your parents. For Paul, they're the same. Which then often leads to another follow-up question. If, if we take that route, we say, well, if, if that's true of Paul, maybe we need an update. Maybe culture has changed. Maybe Paul was small in his thinking. See, I don't think we can easily accept either one of those explanations. If you just start to eliminate parts of the Bible because they don't, they don't meet cultural expectation or, or things that you don't like, then what are you left with really depending on the day? <laughs> 
I mean, there are days I just throw out pretty much anything, right? You know, like, I don't want to be challenged. I don't want to hear that. I, I don't think that can be our response to things that challenge us in Scripture. And further, even though the words that Paul uses here may be a little bit tricky to understand, there are other places in the Bible where Jesus himself talks about sexuality in a way that I think most of us would find, at least our culture would find, restrictive. Let me show you what Jesus says, because his words are actually really clear. Matthew chapter 5, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. No question about what that word means there. It's uh, pretty obvious. He says, But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Uh, And then a few verses later, he says, It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, there's that, that word that Paul used, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, there's no question about what Jesus is saying here. He's saying exactly what you see. And I think we'll, we'll all agree that some of those things make us feel a little uncomfortable in this room. That Jesus' teaching, the Bible's teaching on sexuality doesn't always mesh up with what we think is wise or best. And, And here's what I believe is happening right now in our culture. For a time, we became overly fixated on sexual sins. We made sexual sins way too much in our culture. And now there is a backlash and we are beginning to overcorrect. And so at one time we made too much of sexual sins and we acted like they were the worst sins ever. Now we're having this backlash. We're overcorrecting. Where now we're saying, I don't think they're sins at all. And both of those are wrong. Today what I want to do instead is I want to give you some foundations to answer this question, should Christians update their attitudes about sex to the 21st century? I want to give you some foundations that I think will help you answer this question yourself. Uh, I think these will be some foundations that will help you answer a lot of other questions as we wrestle with a culture that has different values than, than what we think we read in the Bible. Um, And so I'm going to encourage you to take notes. I'm just going to dive into it right now. First, we see biblically from creation that there is an ideal for everything. God who made the world created it perfect, and he made an ideal for everything, for everything. Everything in this world has an ideal in creation. Not just sexuality, everything, but also sexuality. I mean, just think about it this way. Um, God's plan, ideally, for human sexuality is one man, one woman, who come together, no one else, forsake all others, they live life together for the rest of their lives. That's God's ideal. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, especially when you're thinking about creation. Biologically, it works a lot better. I'm not going to go into detail about that, right? But but, but our bodies are, are designed for that kind of a relationship. But also interpersonally or emotionally, it works better. See, when um, ideally, when two people come together, um, they, they have the opportunity to procreate, to have a child that has its father's smile and its mother's eyes. And, and for those of us who can have that, there is, there's an incredible joy that God intends for us. Not only that, but, but in the ideal, again, we're talking the ideal created world, um, that family would continue to grow and there'd be grandkids and great grandkids. And, and then, you know, after, after your 70th anniversary celebration with all of your family trees surrounded, surrounding you, you're looking out at people who didn't exist before you brought them into the world. And, and there would just be such a richness, such a joy that would come from that in God's ideal. Again, a lot of us can't have that for a number of reasons, but, but that, was, that was the ideal. Makes sense. Societally, This ideal makes sense. 
still today, in spite of all of our egalitarianism, in spite of all the strides we've made, do you know that still, 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 the majority of the poor in the world are women and children? The majority of the poor in the United States are women and children. There's something about a family structure with a, with a male and a female and their children that is stronger. We know that even though there are lots of great step-parents and lots of great adopted parents, we know that kids who are being raised by non-biological parents, even one parent in the household, are, are at greater risk for mistreatment or abuse. We know that. That is biologically, there's something in us that wants to care for our own kids better than other people's kids. See, again, now, now this is creation. This is the ideal that God intended for us sexually. It is a best-case scenario for us. And not just sexually, but God had an ideal for us in everything in creation. So here's, here's the thing. No matter what century you're living in, an ideal is still an ideal. Especially when it's an ideal that, that was sewn into the fabric of our world from the beginning of time. It doesn't change. See, that's the first thing you need to understand. There is an ideal for everything. The second thing, none of us can reach every ideal. Creation teaches us this. The fall into sin teaches us this, that none of us can reach every ideal. Sin came into the world, and now all of God's perfect ideals, his plans for beauty and perfection, they are broken. You know, in the beginning, we were intended to live forever. And even though through Jesus, God has made a way for that still to happen, now, even though we get to live forever through Christ, we still have to taste death first. For those of you who are going through a struggle with disease or you're mourning the loss of someone, you know this is not ideal any longer. Or or think again about us, um, you know, physically, biologically, sexually. God's ideal was that when people were in their their mid-teens, they would would come together, they'd be married when their body was at their, their prime, they would begin having children. In the world we're living in today, we realize that it's not a good idea for teenagers to get married and have kids. It's not. It just doesn't work very well. They don't produce stable families or stable kids for the most part. Studies show this. So instead, what do we do now? We, we tell our teenagers to wait 10, 15, 20 years later after their bodies are ready, after, you know, they, when they were created to, to, uh, to, to be married and to be having kids. And we, we tell them to wait 10, 15, 20 years later. We say, go to college and get a job and get a master's degree and get your own house first and then do that. But meanwhile, we, we have this expectation or this hope or this dream that they're going to do all of that and yet they're still going to remain pure. Does anyone else think that's just kind of complicated? I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just complicated, right? Sin has come into the world and it's complicated things. And then you add to that people who, are, who from a young age experience a, an attraction to someone of the same sex. Through no fault of their own, through no choice of their own. They wrestle with that. And no matter what you feel about that, you have to, you have to say with me, this is, this is complicated now. See, that's life now. God has an ideal for everything in the created world. In our fallen world, none of us can reach every ideal. Things are suddenly way, way complicated. Eden is now closed for business. We can't get back there to those ideals. We're living in a different world now, and we have to accept that. Uh, Third, an inability, and this is so important, an inability to reach the ideal isn't grounds for eliminating it. Do you hear me on this? An inability to reach the ideal isn't grounds for eliminating it. I think this is so important. See, just because I can't play basketball like LeBron James, comes as a surprise to some of you, right? 
just because that's true, I, I have to ask myself a question. Can I still acknowledge that there is an ideal basketball player and LeBron James is probably a lot closer to it than I am? See, even though I can't reach that ideal, can I acknowledge that, that some people can or at least they're closer to it? Or am I just going to be someone who eliminates or rejects that ideal to say, hey, if I can't reach it, then forget it. There is no ideal. Am I going to throw it all away? See, do you realize that's exactly what we've done with, with God's sexual ideals for us? Maybe we've rightly said that, hey, I, I, I don't know that I can reach this ideal, but what we're starting to do is we're starting to just eliminate those ideals because we ourselves can't reach them. We're starting to act like they don't exist, which, which is to our detriment, really. Because here's what you need to know about God's ideals. I talked about this last week. If you missed last week, you need to go back and listen to it. This is kind of part two of, of, uh, of this message. Here's what's true about God's ideals. God's ideals are not so much expectations as they are invitations, I'll say that again. God's ideals are not so much expectations as they are invitations. They are invitations to wholeness. See, Paul is saying in that letter that we looked at earlier, we'll look at it again. He's saying that that if you treat God's ideals as expectations, as if they are opportunities for you to try to please God by your behavior, if you assume that God demands these things of you and you can't be pleasing to him in any other way, then you are misusing the law. See, that's what's going on when Paul writes this letter to Timothy. That's a misuse of the law, to treat God's expectations, or his ideals rather, as expectations, not as invitations. But, but see, when you, when you throw away, when you eliminate the ideal because you can't reach it, you're throwing away an invitation from God, an invitation to wholeness. You're, you're missing part of God's heart for you, his, his character, his desire for you. You're, you're shutting your mind to something that God may want for you, not from you, but for you, that you um, are unwilling to see. Fourth, uh, and this is so important, it isn't faithful to fixate on one ideal over the other. It isn't faithful to fixate on one ideal over another. See, all of God's ideals are significant. They are. And yet, as as I said earlier, we have fixated on some over the other, and that's not faithfulness. Some in the church have made these standards for faithfulness. You can teach anything you want in the church as long as you agree with what we agree on, gay marriage or sex before marriage, and and we've drawn these lines in the sand, and we've acted like you can consider yourself faithful if you stand in a certain way on a certain issue. That's not faithfulness. It is not faithful to fixate on one ideal over another. To prove it to you, just imagine next week and every week after if I started fixating on the ideal of your physical health. The Bible talks about the sin of gluttony. Talks about it a lot. What if every weekend you came in here, I started talking about overeating and not taking care of your body and mistreating your body. How long would it be before you were looking for another church? Right, if I got fixated on that ideal over the other. It's biblical. Again, I can show you where it's biblical. If I became fixated on that and I said, God hates gluttonous people and gluttonous people, you you know, they're not allowed in the church. If I fixated on that ideal, this church would be empty, right? You know how I know? Because I preached a message about this back in January and some of you were ready to leave the church. You're like, I didn't come to church to hear about how to take care of my body. Really? It's one of God's ideals. But I get it. I mean, we shouldn't fixate on any one of those things. If I started talking about greed or covetousness every week, I mean, how how tired would you get of that? Some of you, 
you just, you, you, you know that you have a greed problem. You know you have a coveting problem. You're not happy about it, but it's something you struggle with. When we fixate on any one ideal over the other, it's not right. And this is what we've done with, with, uh, with sexual ideals. We've made sexual brokenness the, the focal point of the church. And it's not right. See, I want to show you instead what is right. I want to show you what Paul did. So remember, we looked at that letter that he's writing to Timothy, and, and he talked about how, um, you know, you, the law is good if you use it right, if you understand their invitations, not so much expectations. Uh, he says the law is for, and he gives this whole list of people. But I want you to watch what Paul does next. Take a look. He says, you know, he's just talking about murderers and perjurers and, you know, slave traders and people who, uh, who are sexually immoral. And, and then he goes, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me the strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service because I'm so much better than all the rest of you. Because I don't struggle with those things. That's not what Paul says. He goes on and he says, I thank Jesus because even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy uh, because, or this is kind of tricky because it makes it sound like it's an excuse, but I assure you it's not and we'll see later. Uh, Maybe it's even though, shown mercy though I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now, some of you look at this and you're like, well, Paul was just a blasphemer. That's not as bad as being a murderer. So, so you're saying that to go around telling lies about God is not as bad as uh, causing someone else bodily harm. Okay, you talk to God about that one, all right? Paul didn't see it that way. Instead, he saw this differently. He says, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, even though I was a blasphemer. And then, and then I love how he closes this section, right? Not, not um, holding on to one ideal over the other. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Now remember, Paul just got done talking about people who killed their parents, murderers, slave traders, uh, you know, people who are sexually immoral, a whole list of people. He just put himself in their company. And, and, and according to that list, you know what he said? He said, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul doesn't fixate on one ideal over the other. He sees his brokenness, his sin, as, as, as worse than everyone else's. But he also sees God's mercy for him as greater than anyone else. He says, but for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And then he just bursts into praise here. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul just starts praising God for this fact that, that, that he, like everyone else who can't keep God's ideals, has been shown mercy. See, it's not faithful to fixate on one ideal over another. Instead, I think we should take the position of Paul, who, who finally, the fifth point here that I want to share with you, is that um, God's mercy should make us humble not haughty. See, this is the bottom line for us, that we in this room, we are all missing out on God's ideals for us in more than one category, right? And in spite of that, in spite of how we are missing it, God has shown us mercy in Jesus Christ. God God has been good to us. God sent Jesus into the world to save us from our bad decisions, to save us from our brokenness, to save us from ourselves. God came through Jesus to offer you wholeness that you can't get because some of God's ideals may be out of your reach. See, fullness comes 
through Jesus, not through following laws. And Paul says here, he says, hey, hey, I've been shown mercy in my brokenness, in this broken world that I'm living in, so that I might be example of how good our God is. Do you see, Paul's not, Paul's not haughty. He's not looking at other people and going, man, I'm just glad I'm not like you. I've got my stuff, but shh. He says, no, 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 I, I am humbled by God's grace. Can we still talk about ideals? Absolutely, we can. I think it's totally possible to talk about ideals in a very humble, not haughty way. I talk about ideals with my kids. I think we should teach ideals. At this church, we will teach God's ideal for every aspect of life, knowing all the rest of this is also true. But we can also do it without thinking that our ability to fulfill God's ideals are what make us God-pleasing. That's not true. Jesus makes us God-pleasing. And we can do it in a way that, that isn't haughty, that isn't judgmental. In this church, you won't find us trying to take a stand on issue. People ask us, like, what's your stand on this? What's your stand on this? And, and a stand doesn't take into account all of this. We believe in ideals, and we believe then we should have conversations with people about their own uh, life and, and how, that, how they struggle to reach God's ideals. We, we don't take stands or make policies in that way because we don't believe that's faithful. See, I think instead, instead, if we can do this, if we can be like Paul and we can go around and say, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I, I am the worst, then I think we'll be all right. I'll take your questions. 636-686-0140, see what we got. How do I deal with the guilt that overwhelms me because I've divorced and remarried? I just thank you for your honesty in that, in that question. I also, I, I feel that, you know. Um, I love my new husband, but feel God's disappointment. How do I go forward? Um, I, I think, again, if, if you, just thank you for that question, really. Um, so, such, a, such a heartfelt, vulnerable question. Um, I think if you go through that list that I just I gave you a minute ago, I think you start to see how you begin to live with this, right? God has an ideal, and I think you need to acknowledge that, yeah, and, and you are acknowledging here that, that my life, for whatever reason, I, I've not been able to reach that ideal. I've fallen short of that ideal. But you know what? So is everyone else, right? And, um, and even though the ideal still exists and, and you're not living in it, here's the truth. Here's what Paul's saying, that Jesus Christ came into the world to give you a different kind of fullness, to give you a different kind of wholeness. He came to take away your guilt and your shame. God is not disappointed in you in Christ. Christ has, Christ has taken all of that away in such a graphic way. He suffered for all of that. He's been, he's been you know, ostracized, estranged, uh, I mean, from God. He has sep- he's uh, experienced that, that separation from God. And now for you, there's nothing, there's nothing but mercy. So I think you go forward thanking God for Jesus Thanking God that even though in this part of your life, just like all the rest of us in some other part of our lives, you have missed God's ideal, but thanking God that, that God is good. You know, Paul, Paul said there, he said, you know, I, I thank God that he has, he has poured out his grace and love and he's poured out faith on me even though I don't deserve it. And I think that's how you go forward. Thanking God that even though you failed to reach an ideal in your life, again, which is something we all do, that God is still good and he pours out on you grace and love. It's, it's not our performance that endears us to God. It's our relationship with Jesus. I said before that um, God's question isn't, are you good? Have you followed my laws? 
God's question to us, the primary question, the question that matters more than everything else is the question, are you mine? Are you mine? And when you belong to God through Jesus Christ, when you've been baptized into him, all of this has been washed away. And, uh, and we go forward in grace, knowing that we are loved, that God has made a way for us to, to still find wholeness, even though we uh, miss it through, through uh, living out his ideals. I hope that helps. Next question. Uh, how do we love those who are living a life that is outside our beliefs in regards to sexuality without sending a message that we are condoning the behavior? Uh, honest question. I oh, mean, and I know I, I myself struggle with this. Let me just tell you what I do when I struggle with this question. I reframe the issue. Okay, so, so when I'm feeling the same tension and I'm like, ugh, I don't want to send a message that I'm condoning, I think about the way I handle pretty much every other behavior that is not ideal from God's standpoint. And truthfully, I think, so um, when, when I'm in a conversation or I'm, I'm living, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to love someone who is greedy, you know, who just can't get enough. Uh, when I'm trying to love someone who is a, uh, a slanderer and a gossip, when I'm trying to love someone who's got anger problems, what do I do? For me, that helps to begin to reframe this issue because, again, for whatever reason, we become fixated on this sexuality issue. We have made it an issue like no other issue. We, we've treated it as if it's something different. And um, all these are the same, right? When we fall short of God's ideals in any part of our lives, it's, it's the same deal. My guess is that when you think about how you treat people who are falling short of God's ideal in, someone else, in some other way, someone who's overweight or unhealthy, someone who you know, has some other issue in their life, you find a way to do this. And, and you realize that loving someone is never condoning, it doesn't have to be. Just because I love someone doesn't mean I condone their behavior. I mean, that, that's impossible. None of us could ever, you know, like be married for more than 10 minutes if we thought these two things had to come together, that loving someone meant I condone everything that you do. See, love and condoning, they're, they're not the same thing. And I think we realize that in most other cases, for whatever reason, and in my mind too, there are these warning bells that go off on issues of sexuality. And I'm not sure that's from God as much as that is from culture. Um, I, I think in all of these issues, there are ways to love people. Maybe there are ways to have conversations with people about God's ideals, um, not in a haughty way, but in a very humble way, talking about what God wants for us, not what God, what God wants from us. Um, but again, don't let this become such a different issue to every other issue that the people you love struggle with in their lives. Thanks for that question. Next. Um, for any gay person sitting in this room or thinking of joining this church, how should they feel being referred to as less than ideal? It's kind of a brutal question. Uh, I appreciate it, though. It's, it's an honest question. Um, I, I think here, here's where I draw, draw a distinction here. Um, when you say for any gay person sitting in this room um, being referred to as less than ideal, um, I, I think this question in your mind, and maybe this is the way I said it, and if so, I apologize for that, um, it's, it's making it more about the person. In this message, I've tried to make it about the behavior, right? I, I think we've talked about behavior and how we live up to certain behavioral ideals, um, not about us as people. But ultimately, I think any gay person sitting in this room who's thinking of this, they, they should feel exactly like the rest of us, because I think I offended a lot of people today, Right? And that's the reality is that all of us have behaviors in our lives that are less than ideal. Now, I will fully acknowledge that people who struggle with same-sex attraction, um, people who are, who are living a gay lifestyle, that I, I don't believe, I don't believe, I don't believe that it's something that you, you know, if I'm speaking to those of you in this room because I know you're in here. I don't believe this is something that you've necessarily chosen for yourself. I don't believe you've chosen those attractions. I believe that's true of a lot of us, though. 
that we have things in our lives, we have appetites in our lives that, that are driven for things that are less than ideal, that we, that we didn't cause, we didn't control, we didn't choose. And all of us have to learn how to wrestle with this less than ideal world we're living in where we've got a flawed, broken, sinful nature where, where you know, things are, just, think, things are just confused with inside of us. And, and we're all like this. So, um, you know, the way I'd answer this question is we, we're not singling out people who are simply, simply uh, struggling with, with, you know, a same-sex attraction or uh, who are living a gay lifestyle. Um, we all need to come to grips with the fact that and, and I mean this, all of us, all of us, all of us. And if you're sitting here today and you think this is not referring to you, you're wrong. That all of us are living in ways that are less than the ideal. But again, the ideal isn't what makes us endearing to God. These are not expectations that make us somehow lesser people. And God's like, oh, well, you, you know, you get an A on my expectation list and you get a C on my expectation list. So I love the A student, not the C student. That's not what they're for. They're for us. They are invitations to wholeness. And so, you know, I, man, um, I, I, think, I think those who are walking this journey, it's a tough journey, and a lot of us are walking tough journeys, frankly. And I don't think it's fair in our culture that we have elevated one struggle um, above every other struggle and made it as if it's the worst struggle. There are lots of struggles. And man, I, I'll tell you this, because I counsel people. And I counsel people who are struggling with this, and I counsel people who are struggling with a lot of other things. In every struggle against our sinful flesh, in the fallenness of this world, every appetite we fight with that drives us to less than God's ideal, it's something that's difficult to wrestle with. But none of those things disqualify us from God's love. None of them do. So if you think that's what I'm saying, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, we are loved because of Jesus. So again, man, if, if, you're a, if you're a person who's gay in this room, you are loved not because of your behavior, not because of who you love. You're loved because of Jesus. And God's question to you is not, are you gay or are you straight? His question to you is, are you mine? That's what matters. Are you mine through Jesus Christ in baptism? Um, I've always understood that the Bible tells us that no one sin is bigger than any other. All are equally forgivable by Christ. Do I have that wrong? <laughs> um, absolutely not. The only sin that we hear about in the Bible that is called sometimes the unforgivable sin is, uh, is called sometimes a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the sin of doubt. It's this, not just doubt, I guess it's really the sin of rejection, I should say. Um, so when you reject Jesus as God's full revelation of himself, when you reject the work of Jesus for you, when you reject Jesus' offer of relationship, when you say, no, I'd rather stand on my own, I'd rather stand on my own ability to meet God's expectations, that's the thing that's not forgivable because you're standing outside of, of your very mode for forgiveness. Every other sin that human beings commit um, every other ideal that we fail to, to meet. Um, they're, they're all equally tragic. They're all equally um, complicated, I think. Um, and they're all forgiven in Christ. Uh, so you absolutely do not have that wrong. Don't ever let anyone tell you differently. Christ has paid for all of our brokenness. And no matter where we're living right now, no matter how far we feel um, you know, we are from a, from a whole life, Jesus wants to come into your life. And, uh, and he wants to begin to to help you find wholeness. Again, not through, not through your perfection, but through his perfection, through his love, through his goodness. He wants to impart that to you. I think that's it. If you want to hear more questions, tune in for the live stream next service. I need to go take a nap. Um, <laughs> uh, here's what I want to say as we close, and uh, I, I just want everyone to hear this, that God's design, God's ideal 
is beautiful and perfect. It is. And we should teach that and we should acknowledge that and we should talk about God's ideals because they're beautiful and they're perfect for us. But I also, I also believe, and the Bible teaches, that when sin came into the world, our ability to live an ideal, perfect life, it's gone. It's off the table. For all of us, we can't do it anymore. But Jesus came into this world to give us beauty, to give us his perfection, to give us fullness anyway. And so I want to invite the musicians out here because we're going to close with a song that is just, uh, just such a beautiful song, and I think it'll say it better than I can say it, um, a song that, that teaches all of us who, who, who are sitting right now, sitting here right now, are being honest with ourselves and know we are living short of God's ideal. It teaches us about what do we do now? How, how do I handle this? What's, what's God's hope for me? What's God's plan for me? How does God feel about me when I'm living short of his ideal? There's a song we're about to sing that talks about this so well. I'm just going to, I'm just going to be quiet and get off the uh, platform and, uh, and let our musicians sing it. And I invite you to sing along. Please stand. Mm-hmm.